Now, last year, it was made a federal holiday. You know, when the Civil War ended and blacks had gained their freedom, you know, the, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. The war ended in 1865, but not everybody knew that they were freed, even though it had been declared and it took some time. It was a process of the, the Union uh, generals and army going through the southern states announcing freedom. And the last state they got to, the deepest state in Texas, they got there. And this was a couple years now that blacks had been free from slavery. But yet they, they didn't know it. And of course, their slave masters didn't care to tell them. So they just continued there in slavery until finally a Union general showed up on June 19th, tradition holds, and announced, you guys are free. You don't need to keep doing like this. You don't need to keep living this way. You are now free. That's a, a, a holiday now, a federal holiday that we celebrate, and I think it's rightly so. But this really relates to what Jesus is saying here, right? A lot of times... People are walking around as, as slaves to sin and they, they think they're free. And Jesus is having this argument and they say, we're not enslaved to anyone. And they say, you have no idea. You're a slave to sin and you don't even know it. A lot of us were that way. Our, our freedom has been bought and paid for and yet we continue to walk day after day, year after year, as though we're not free, as though we're still slaves. And sadly, in, in the example of sla slavery, even after they were told and they knew and accepted, okay, yeah, we're free, they really didn't work out a good system in this transition. Very difficult. You know, we can't judge history too harshly because I don't know how we would handle it. But many blacks kind of continued to live in slavery after they were free. They set up this system called sharecropping, where it's basically like, okay, well, the the slave owners, the plantation owners, we still own the land. So you guys can be free and live on the land and work the land and grow all the crops and then give us all the profits. And you'll still get a few pennies and I guess that'll constitute your freedom. But this went on for decades where there was freedom available, but yet people's lives didn't change in accordance with that. So we talked about that last week. And we ask the question, who is Jesus? When Jesus says, I am Yahweh, who, who is Jesus? Like, we want that to be filled in. It's the time of year we're entering into Easter. You'll start seeing all kinds of TV programs on the History Channel and PBS. and Who was the real Jesus? And finding the real Jesus. And they'll try to figure out what he looked like. And what tone was his skin? And how long was his beard? And all these things. Who was Jesus? But Jesus... He fills in a lot of blanks in the book of John with these I am statements. And so last week we looked at the first three. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the living water. You know, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he went on to talk about how his body was going to be broken for us. His blood was going to be shed for us as a payment for the penalty of sin and unless you partake of this bread and this blood, you have no part in me. I am the bread of life. And we all need bread and water for our daily substance, right? To live every day. We need these things. Jesus says, in that same way, 
you need me. I am the bread of life. We looked last week at when he said, I am the light of the world. We can now walk in spiritual light. We can now be uh, uh, controlled by and led by the light of the world. We no longer need to be controlled by darkness. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the door for the sheep. Not like a thief that comes over the, da- the gate, but I am the door and the sheep can move in and out from me freely to good pasture and to safety. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am. Every time you hear that in this message, just let that resound in your spirit. I am Yahweh, the same God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush and said, my name is I am. Now Jesus is saying, I am. And then filling in the gap, he said, I am the good shepherd. And my sheep know my voice and they follow me and I lead them to safety. I protect them. That's where we left off. Now we're on the fifth I am statement. Let's look at John 14. That was the introduction. John 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How are we going to know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, Jesus said, you would have known my Father also. For now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Get what Jesus is saying there. He just keeps doubling down. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples are, can, can we see the Father? I've been with you this whole time. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same. I am. In verse 6 there, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. What a bold statement. And that's a very controversial statement. People get very uptight about this particular passage. This is one of the things that people get very uh, uptight against Christianity with when what do you mean you are the way and no one comes to the Father but through you? Why, why so exclusive? Jesus says this thing numerous times in numerous ways. In the book of Matthew, he says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many people just pass on through it. But narrow is the gate. And narrow is the way that leads to life. Few pass through it. And then he says, enter by the narrow gate. But this is a very, very controversial statement that Jesus makes here. And, and we wrestle with this all the time now. And I'm sure some of you have probably had these discussions. 
We mean the way, the only way. And there's really two kinds of people when you get into this discussion. Honestly, there are a lot of antagonists towards Christianity that have just decided we reject it, we don't want to hear it, that whole thing is bunk. And it really doesn't matter if you say there's one way or two ways or ten ways. They're always going to be upset that there's not another way, that there's not 11 ways. In addition, I think there's a second kind of person. There are some people that just, you know, that, that seems like kind of exclusive. Like, there's really no other way? What about, what about this way? Some people think this. What, what about this? And there's some honest questioning about what does Jesus mean by the way? But, you know, when it comes to that, and the, especially the antagonists, it really doesn't matter. There could be two ways. There could be ten ways. Why, why not? Let's just think about this logically. Why not seven billion ways? Are there seven billion people on the planet today? Somewhere around there? Why are there not seven billion ways? Or why stop there? You know what? I don't know what the existence, total population of planet Earth from the beginning to now is. Does anyone know the answer to that? Let's just say it's 20 billion people. I don't think anyone knows but God. Let's just say 20 billion people have lived on this planet. Why is there not 20 billion ways? It, it gets kind of ridiculous when you go down that path, right? But let's talk for a minute, just kind of logically, and may, maybe with a little legalese, why is a way necessary? Why, why do we need a way? God, God says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, eternal life for you. Why, why is there a way? Why is a way necessary? we got to go back to the beginning. Genesis 3, remember... Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're walking with God. They're in relationship with God every day. They're walking with God in the garden and things are great. And they just have a, a few things they need to follow. The main thing, God says, just obey me. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just leave that alone. But you know the story. They eat of the tree. They disobey God. God says, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. You'll surely die. Serpent came and convinced them, no, don't listen to that. It's delicious. Look at it. Eat it. So they did. At that moment, sin enters mankind. There's, there's separation in the relationship with God at that point, right? There, there's, there's separation. God and his character and his holiness, he cannot just be uh, contaminated, tainted, poisoned by the existence of sin that now exists in mankind. Think of it this way. If I offered you a glass of water, you're thirsty, and I say, listen, here's a glass of water. This is 99.9% .9 good, pure water. There's only a drop of cyanide in it. Enjoy. Wait a minute. This, this water's 99.9% .9 good, but wouldn't a drop of cyanide kill me? Yeah, but don't worry. Most of it is pure. It's good. It's good water. Drink it. You wouldn't drink it, right? Of course you wouldn't. And if we're honest, if we look at the, the state of mankind and the progression from them till now, it's really not a drop of cyanide, is it? It's really half the cup full of cyanide. I mean, the Bible describes us as inventors of evil. There's no end to the way we invent evil, you know, from Lying and stealing and cheating to pride and greed and murder and rape and pillaging. I mean, it, it goes on and on. 
We may not participate in all those things, but, but we still carry that same, whether it's a drop or a half a cup of cyanide. You would never drink that, right? Why, why would we expect God to poison himself with the sin of mankind. Something needs to happen. The water needs to be purified. It needs to be made pure. Something needs to happen in us that is going to provide a way for that separation to disappear, for us to be reunited in that relationship with God. Or think of it this way. You're driving on Summit Boulevard. Guy behind you is texting gets distracted and rear-ends you. And you get out and you're frustrated, but you're polite. And hey, let's, let's exchange information so you can pay for the damages to my car. And guy gets mad, pulls out a gun and shoots you, kills you, dead. Every, you know, there's dozens of witnesses. Everybody sees it, there's no doubt. He goes to court, he's on trial, he's found guilty. And the judge says, you know, I'm looking at your record. I don't see that you've ever done this before, so you know, you're free to go. Clearly, you're a pretty good person, and this is a one-time incident, and no, no problem, you're free to go. And your family's there in court saying, no, that's not justice. How can that be? He can't just go free. He just killed someone. Or let, that's a little dramatic. Let's back the example down a little bit to be not so dramatic, a little more believable, right? Say you're driving on Summit Boulevard and the guy behind you gets distracted, texting on his phone. He rear ends you, smashes the back of your car. Same thing. Everybody saw it. There's no doubt he did it. He's guilty. You go to court and the judge says, you know, doesn't look like this has happened before. So no problem. You're free to go. And you're sitting there in court saying, hey, wait, uh, question. Uh, he still got to pay for the damages to my car, right? No, no penalty. He's free to go. Uh, no, that's not right. He, I'm sure he's a great person and he just got distracted on his cell phone, but he still smashed my car. He was at fault. He's got to at least pay for the damages to my car, right? No, that wouldn't be just, would it? That wouldn't be justice. None of us would accept that, but yet people seem to think God could accept that. Why couldn't God just accept? And really, our sins is far more damaging to the presence of God than a rear-ended, damaged car. So from a legal point of view, we can see, you know, we, we want justice for these things. And you know what? God and his holiness and his person, justice is demanded. But at the same time, God is love, Right? God is love. God loves us. We just read, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So what is the way? If God loves us, if, if justice must be satisfied, but Jesus is going to prepare a way, a place for us, what is the way? Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. For justice to be satisfied, there's got to be death. You remember back to Genesis 3 when God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't die that day, did they? No, instead it says God killed an animal and he clothed them. They were naked at that point, And for the first time, they were clothed in the skin of an animal. God basically saying, okay, now you need to have a covering. 
to be in relationship with me. You've got to, death entered the world at that day. That day, a sacrifice had to be made on their behalf, but it wasn't enough, right? It was just a temporary sacrifice. And they continued to sin continually. And it really became clear that soon God needed to set up, all right, you're going to do these different animal sacrifices. and This is the way you do it. And you need to do this periodically throughout the year because of the way the sin controls you. And so these animal sacrifices take place throughout the Old Testament, but it's never quite enough, right? What if? What if there was a life so precious, so valuable, so pure, that that life could be taken as a sacrifice once for all of sins, for all of mankind. What if, what if such a life existed? Paul says, you have been bought with a price, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the imperishable, spotless, spotless unblemished lamb, the blood of Jesus. You have been bought with a price. There are no riches on earth that could buy a way. Why is there only one way? There is only one being in existence that could afford to pay the price. It cost a price. We could take all the wealth of Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates, put it all together. It's still not even a drop in the bucket. It is not enough wealth. It is not enough riches to pay the price to buy away. There was only one that could buy away, one that could afford the price. And you know what is crazy and why we sing the way we did this morning? Because he didn't have to. He didn't have to pay the price. He was the only one that could pay the price to make the way, and he didn't have to. He chose to. Romans 6.23, again, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A free gift. He didn't have to do it. It was a free gift. And so we need to know that, and we should all be able to explain that. You know, rather than being upset that there's not multiple ways, we should be very grateful that there is at least one way because there doesn't have to be. There doesn't have to be. This is so real. Jesus said, I am the way. Early Christians were known as followers of the way before we were known as Christians. When you read through the book of Acts, it wasn't for some time later before we were called Christians, people in the church were referred to as followers of the way or believers in the way. That's how real this was. Jesus said, I am the way. Then he said, I am the truth. He didn't say, I know the truth. I speak the truth. This is an audacious statement. I am truth. Jesus embodied truth. Man, it's so relieving to me to believe in this. It is such an anchor in my life because doesn't it seem like the world is getting more and more and more confusing every day? You watch the news. Brianna, I keep up with the news a bit more 
Brianna does some, but a lot of times she'll come to me and ask me like, hey, so what's going on with this story I heard about? I don't know. I, you know, I, I watched the coverage of it with Fox News and they said this, and then I watched CNN and they said this, and then I read the Wall Street Journal and it said this, and then I read the New York Times and it said this. I have no idea what the truth is. I got four different perspectives. They can't all be right. I have no idea what the truth is. It's, it's getting harder and harder to navigate what is true in any given situation, at any given time. There's, there's so many lies bombarding us, and it's so easy to believe them and fall into them. But Jesus says, I am truth. I embody truth. And, you know, just going back to thinking about this logically, we hear this phrase a lot lately. This is kind of a new thing over the last few years in my lifetime, but you hear it all the time. My truth, you know, I'm following my truth. I'm doing my truth. That was his truth. That was her truth. The problem is there's 7 billion people in the world. There can't be 7 billion opposing truths and they all be right. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Show of hands. Anyone seen Fiddler on the Roof? All right, good. At least a few. This takes place. This, this group of Jews in Ukraine, actually, that are being uh, evicted by, by Russia. And it's a great movie. It's really funny. If you can find it with, with subtitles, uh, it's worth watching. But the, the main character, Tevya, He's kind of an influential figure in the community, this poor Jewish community. And one day he goes out and a crowd gathers around him and a man brings a newspaper with the daily news and, hey, the Russians are coming to kick us out of here. And one man's making one point and Tevye says, ah, you, yes, you are right. And then another man says, wait, no. And he makes the opposite point. And Tevye goes, yes, you are right. And then a third guy says, Tevya, he's right, he's right. They can't both be right. Tevya, you are also right. It doesn't work, right? It breaks down. It breaks down logically. You probably heard it said, you know, you can get 10 opposing opinions on one subject together. It is very plausible and even probable that all 10 of the opposing opinions are wrong but it's impossible that they're all right. Hopefully there's at least one that's right. Hopefully there's at least one that we can cling on to as truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And Jesus continues this, you know, he's arrested, tried by uh, uh, the, the high priest, sent to Pontius Pilate, the Roman. And Pilate is questioning him and says, are you the king of the Jews? They say, you're the king of the Jews. Jesus said, did uh, you figure that one out on your own or did other people tell you? Pilate's a little annoyed. Keeps questioning him. Finally, Jesus says, you're right in saying, I am a king. And for this reason, I have come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Those who are on the side of truth, hear my voice. Pilate says, what is truth? and then leaves the room. You know the rest. We looked last week in John 8 where Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This is a very, very popular phrase. You see it 
probably in most libraries that you ever go to, you'll see this and you, you will know the truth and the truth will fit, set you free. And while it is true that the more knowledge we gain, the more education we gain, the more power we're going to have, like the Proverbs say, seek knowledge, seek wisdom more than silver or gold. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying gain more information, read more books. Instead of saying, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. He is saying, you will know me and I will make you free. You will know me. See, we, we can know him. You know, I, this word is confusing in English. I don't know if it works out the same in, in Spanish. I can say, I know algebra. And I can say, I know my wife. Is it the same thing? No, it's not the same thing, is it? Two totally different things. Jesus is saying, you can know me, not know about me, not know facts about me. I have come that you can actually know me. I know I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, big Bob Dylan fan. I could tell you all kinds of interesting facts about Bob Dylan, about different songs, why he wrote this song, different albums, what was the background of this album. I know, I've seen him in concert probably 10 times. Big Bob Dylan fan. If you ask me, do you know Bob Dylan? No, I know a lot about him. I've never met him. Even if I had met him once or twice, I don't know him. Jesus isn't saying you'll know more information. He's saying continue in my word, continue in the truth, and you will be set free. Then in John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I'm going to breeze over this one real quick. But he says, I am the life. We read last week, this life, Jesus said, I came that you would have life and that you would have it more abundantly, this abundance of life. Let's turn back a little bit to uh, John 11, to the next I am. John 11 this story, Jesus is good friends with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And Jesus is off and Lazarus is sick. And so they send someone to Jesus to say, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to hang out. I'm not going to go right now. And the disciples are like, shouldn't we go? He's like, no, not yet. Lazarus ends up dying. And then Jesus says, okay, let's go. And there's a lot of sarcasm in this story. They're like, well, now he's dead. Shouldn't we have gone before? Jesus said, ah, he's not dead. He's just asleep. And they're like, well, if he's asleep, why go at all? Now? All right, you guys don't get it. Let's go. So they go. In verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, Jesus is running into town. Martha sees him from a distance and runs off to meet him. And she, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
So Jesus shows up in the middle of this story, tragedy, grieving, heartache. And he meets the family members. Oh, if God, if you had only been here, Lord, you could have saved him. But Jesus already said he was going to let this happen on purpose. If you had only been here, you could have saved him. And his, his reaction is, is uh, her reaction to his statement is perplexing. He says, he's going to rise again. Do you believe that? And she said, well, yeah, in the last day, right? There's a resurrection coming at the last day. And yeah, sure, I, I believe he's going to rise on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? It's such a big statement. I am Yahweh, the resurrection. Now, up to this point, resurrection is not a completely new thing. You know, there are a few people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. Jesus himself had raised other people from the dead. And you know the story, you know where I'm going. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet Jesus said, I am the resurrection. What is, what is he saying? Obviously not chronologically, but it's because of him. It's because of who he is that resurrection is possible. And not just resurrection of, okay, Lazarus died, but he can be brought back to life. But you know, he's gonna die again. Lazarus isn't still around doing a book tour and TV interviews telling the story of what happened. He was raised from the dead, but he died again. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. He will keep living. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he was talking about this idea of the resurrection. And he said, you know what? If the resurrection is not true, we are poor miserable souls. Our faith is in vain. But if the resurrection is true, wow, there's a whole lot packed into that. You see, just like I said a moment ago, talking about Jesus as the way, what if, what if there was a life that was precious enough, that was so valuable and so pure that that life could be sacrificed for the sins of all to create a way? How incredible would that be Yes, but in addition to that, what if there was a life that was not only precious and valuable and pure, but glorious and powerful enough to not just be a sacrifice for our sin, but defeat sin and death entirely, forever? What if that kind of power existed? Let's look at Philippians 3. Beautiful translator, you doing okay? Paul is writing and he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss in verse seven, I'm sorry. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him 
the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection. There is power in the resurrection. What is the power in the resurrection? Before we were freed from our sin, right? But I was talking to a friend, having dinner with a friend a few nights ago, and he referenced this thing I've heard my whole Christian life, this idea that we carry as Christians sometimes that, oh, I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, we all probably heard that. Maybe we've even said that. I'm just a, a sinner saved by grace. And, and we kind of go around with that kind of attitude. I'm, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But we need to stop that because it's no longer true. It once was true. I was a sinner saved by grace, but now I am no longer a sinner saved by grace. Now I am a saint that lives by faith. And yes, I may sometimes sin, but the more I walk with him because of the power of his resurrection, I may sometimes sin, but you know what? I'm sinning less and sinning less and sinning less because of the power of his resurrection. See, it's not just that the sins were paid for by his blood, but the power of his resurrection regenerated us, gave us newness of life. We became born again. Paul wrote in Corinthians that anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. All things have been made new. We are now new. We are now freed from sin. We are no longer just controlled by sin. We've been given a whole new life, a whole new heart, a whole new spirit. We've been completely regenerated, sanctified, not just sinners saved by grace. The resurrection power is for now. When we go back to the story, Martha said, yeah, I believe that in the last day, Lazarus will be raised up. And Jesus said, no, I am the resurrection. I'm standing right in front of you. I am the resurrection. The resurrection power is for now, not just in the future. Jesus always made this statement. He went around saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I always kind of wrestled with and wondered, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And then one day I just realized he means it's him. He's the kingdom of heaven. When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he means I'm right here. You could reach out your hand and touch me. The kingdom of heaven is that close. The resurrection of power is for now. Remember in Psalm 23, we always hear this psalm read at funerals. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemy. You know that isn't just for heaven? You know our enemies are not in heaven? When he says, I prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies, that means now, here on earth. Abundant life now, resurrection power now, so that we are no longer controlled by sin, just sinners saved by grace. But no, we have been freed from that. We have been given a new heart, and we are now walking in resurrection power. Paul wrote in Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And then he goes on to explain, and guess what? This should affect the way you live. You've got this freedom. Walk differently. You've got this power. Don't be normal. 
Walk differently. Love differently. Do relationships differently. Do finances differently. Do work differently. Associate with your enemies differently. There's no aspect of our life that the resurrection power that Christ has provided for us does not affect. In closing, I'm going to finish the story. There's one more we're not going to get to. Jesus said, I am the vine. In John 15, a whole chapter about I am the vine. Like branches that need to be attached to the vine to get their sustenance. Jesus said, abide in me, live in me, like a branch connected to the vine for its nutrients. Be connected to me and you will have this life. In John 18, Jesus is off in the garden praying and Judas leads a group of Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. And they come and Jesus steps forward and all his disciples are there and they say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus opened his mouth and said, I am he. It says they all stepped back and fell to the ground. I am Yahweh, Jesus, peeled back the veil just all so slightly for just a moment, said the word, I am. And they beheld his glory. They beheld his power. And what was the response? They fell down in terror, in horror. Jesus looks at him on the ground and said, didn't you say you were looking for Jesus? And in his restraint, he puts the curtain back so they're not exposed to that glory, that power anymore. And he says it again, I am he. And they stand up and they arrest him. And he's led and he's crucified. Jesus said, you know what? I've got all the power in the universe. I could call down 12,000 legions of angels at any moment while he was being beaten, while he had the crown of thorns, while he was mocked, while they were nailing, while he was hanging there. At any moment, he could have called down 12,000 legions of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. Why not? Jesus said, you know what? My life could not be taken from me. No one can take my life away from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And if I lay it down on my own accord, I can take it up again. And it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? The resurrection was coming. The resurrection power was about to be poured out. The way was about to be provided so that God and his people could be reconciled again, could be made new. Do we believe that? If we really believe that and treasure that in our hearts, is it going to change the way we live, the way we interact, the way we make decisions? I said it last week, and I'll, I'll say it again. This is a special church. I believe that with all my heart. You know, you hear people say Sunday mornings, between 10 and noon is the most segregated two hours of the week. And in a lot of ways it's true. But when you look all over the world right now, there are people getting together that society says should not be together. But yet in Christ, we're all coming together. 
This is unique, what we've got here. The different cultures, the different nationalities, the different perspectives that we all bring together, but yet we're unified in this message. We're unified because of what he did. And I believe God has a special purpose for us. It's amazing to me when you go to Israel and you see such conflict between Jews and Palestinians, but then you walk into a church and you wait a minute, there's Jews and Palestinians in the same building, holding hands, worshiping Jesus together. Why is that? It's not natural. Resurrection power makes that possible. I visit a church in Aurora often. I love it. It's not diverse in the Latino population like we have, but there's white people, black people, Asian people, some Latinos. But I love just going and just observing and just watch. It's different from what we do here, but there's a richness in the differences in church services. But then I, I just watch people interact with such love and care and compassion. People that in the world should be divided, but yet because of resurrection power, they're not. We're going to have an impact in this community. We're going to have an impact in this world because of the great I am, Yahweh, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the way. Thank you for the life abundant that you give us. Lord, again, you know where each one of us is. God, may something that I've said this morning, or more importantly, that was read from your word, just penetrate our lives, our hearts. May we be better people because of who you are and what you've done in us. Help us to walk closer to you and to truly know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being attentive, not falling asleep, and uh, have a great afternoon.